HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here at HeritageRadioNetwork.com in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'd like to thank our sponsor, Whole Foods Market, and they remind you that every bite has a story. So whether it's a tomato, a muffin, or a T-bone steak, your conscious food choices can change the planet. Because at Whole Foods Market, every single purchase you make helps us support things like animal welfare, organic agriculture, Equitable trade and energy offsets. Let's think before we eat. Let's retake our plates. Whole Foods Market. Today's episode is uh, with Kenji Lopez Alt of is it kacuisine.com? <laughs> um, that that actually is kind of has been kind of dropped. So yeah, yeah. I'm, I, I I did have a small catering business called Ka Cuisine for a while. Um, um, the website is still up, but it's still up, and you're still hireable if need be. If if the money is right. <laughs> I'll do anything, yes. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to hold you to that, you know, that's going to be on air. Um, well, Kenji actually went to MIT for... Architecture. Well, for prior architecture. to that. Prior to that, I was a biology major, yes. Bio- and, and then, then eventually moving into... Switched into architecture. And graduated and became a cook. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because degrees are worth it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. But in Boston, um, Kenji worked at... Clio? I worked at... Well, I worked at Number 9 Park with, yeah. um, with Barbara Lynch. Um, who is now a gigantic restaurant empire. Uh, uh, I mean, she's, she's just all over the place now. Um, but when I worked with her, it was just, uh, it was just number nine park, um, which is now her, you know, one of her flagship restaurants, um, uh, as well as at, um, B and G oysters and the butcher shop, um, which are uh, her second and third restaurants. Um, and then, uh, I worked at Clio with, uh, Ken Oranger. Um, Clio is also, you know, another, Sort of Boston landmark restaurant. Um, Clio. He's also grown in Empire recently. Yes, he has also grown. I think he's up to seven restaurants now. I don't know. It feels like the two of them are just these fountainheads. Uh, right. Yeah. They're definitely, uh, 
Yeah, the big boys on the <laughs> Boston scene. Um, oddly, I was actually in Boston at the same time going to school and photographing in restaurants, mm-hmm. um, most specifically Number 9 and Cleo. Uh, I kind of was quiet, shy, and just there to document, <laughs> so I didn't interact with the chefs that much. But oddly, Kenji and I may have uh, crossed paths. Um, yeah, probably did. <laughs> but oddly, uh, we sit here today to talk about similar uh, scopes and similar directions of what we do with food after mm-hmm. working at Number 9 Park. Cleo Uni, uh, you worked as an editor at Cook's Illustrated Magazine. That's right. Yeah, I was. I was. Uh, I started at Cook's Illustrated Magazine as a um, as a test cook, um, developing recipes, um, and I was there for about three years. Um, and uh, you know, when I was when I left, I was a I was an editor there, um, and. Now I work for uh, SeriousEats.com, um, which is a website based out of New York. Um, you know, where our our goal is to make everyone's lives more delicious. Um, and uh, I'm the I'm the managing editor at Serious Eats. So. While working at Cooks Illustrated, though, it says that you acted as the in-house science advisor. Yeah, well, I, I I've I've always taken an interest in in sciences. Obviously, um, I come from uh, you know my 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 father and my my grandfather are both scientists. Um, in what in what kind of realm? Uh, organ grand, grandfather's an organic chemist. Um, my grand and my father is a microbiologist. Yeah, so you know um, tons about ester chains. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I, yeah. If, if I if I knew more about ester chains, I would probably not be a cook right yeah, now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I came from a scientific background. Um, you know, I went to an engineering school, so I've always been really interested in um, in science. And and um, so basically, um, yeah. After I worked in restaurants for a number of years, um, I became very interested in the science of cooking and the science of food. Um, and uh, you know, at Cooks Illustrated, that was that was a place where I really got to explore that a lot. Um, and and sort of apply that knowledge um, in in recipe development and developing new techniques and uh, you know teaching home cooks how to cook better by knowing the science behind what they're doing um, and and that's basically what I do to this day yeah um, you know I'm I, I write a column called the Food Lab uh, on Serious Eats which is also it's also going to be it's also a, a book coming out uh, in 2012 by uh, published by Norton um, but um, the uh, yeah the Food Lab is all is just all about um, teaching people the basic scientific principles behind, you know, everyday foods. Um, so, you know, we'll talk about everything from the science of, of, you know, roasting a turkey to mashing potatoes to making a pizza crust to forming hamburger patties. Um, so it's not the complexities of food science as people think today, like molecular astronomy. No, no, it's nothing like that. Yeah, it's basically, you know, it's, it's, it's even as simple as, you know, what's, what's going on at a molecular level when you, when you boil a pot of water. Um, and, you know, knowing, and knowing things like that, knowing the, the whys and the hows of cooking, um, I think is, um, is really the best way to become a better cook because once, once you know how things work and why things work, you're no longer really chained to recipes or chained to tradition. You, 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 once you understand why it works, you can, you can sort of develop your own techniques, um, develop your own recipes and it really, you know, frees you up to be a little more, um, I guess a little more, um, personal and artistic in the kitchen because you can, you know, you can you have the confidence to put your own um, own mark on your yeah. food rather than being chained to a and recipe. And I'm assuming you err less, too, because you could troubleshoot at that point. Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, even, even say, you're, you know, you're making, a, you're making a pizza dough. Um, you know, pizza doughs are so sensitive to, say, the, the heat of an oven. And if, if you know how it's going to react to the heat of an oven and, and you see what's going on in there, you can, you can sort of adapt what you're doing. And, you, you know, so you know, that, you know that, okay, so my oven is on, an, is on a high cycle right now, so it's actually cooking faster than the recipe says it's going to cook. So I'm, I'm not going to be chained to a three-minute timer. Yeah. You know, I, I know, okay, this time it's only going to take two minutes. So, you know, by, by knowing how things work and why things work, the way they do you uh yeah you, you definitely end up with better food 
Yeah. Um, we're going to come back to pizza because he didn't, Kenji didn't just use that as a, a random example. He's kind of a, obsessed with oh, yeah. <laughs> the food itself. But we'll definitely return to the idea of uh, Kenji troubleshooting both Neapolitan and New York style pizzas. Mm-hmm. But you know, you know what I find interesting? Like, uh, um, Cook's Illustrated had America's Test Kitchen. I remember right. mm-hmm. watching that show, and <clears throat> you were involved in that show as well. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually, let's see, I'm in, I'm in a couple seasons of that show. Yeah. I mean, I, I, did, I did a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff, um, and then uh, I'm one of the co-hosts. In, yeah. I think it's 2009 and 2010 season. Cool. For, for because what's amazing, it's, it's the research uh, that comes out of that show that mm-hmm. is actually seen on the screen. Um, mm-hmm. from recipe testing to equipment testing. Right. Because uh, some of my favorite things are when they have three similar uh, pieces of equipment. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Be it like three different pans and show the differences between that uh-huh. um, rather than a lot of cooking shows where it's one recipe, one methodology, and this right. is how you do right. it. Well, I mean, it's th- those, I mean, those recipes, you see them and they're, you know, it's an eight minute segment on the show. But, um, you know, what you, what you don't see is that it takes, it, it takes one person two months of research and writing to to come yeah. up with that recipe, um, you know, I for example, I I worked on a um, on a pie crust. Um, I think it was in two thousand seven. Um, that that appears on the show. It's in Cooks Illustrated also, but it's uh, basically it's a it's a pie crust where part of the water is replaced by vodka. Um, yeah. and the the idea being that um, you know gluten, which is the uh, the, the the protein matrix that forms um, in water when you mix flour with water, you know, it's the thing that gives bread structure um if you have too much of that in a pie crust uh the 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 crust becomes leathery and tough um but if you don't add enough water it's very difficult to roll out a pie crust so the solution is to use is to use uh alcohol because you can you can form a pliable dough with alcohol but but gluten doesn't form an alcohol and you know it's such a simple such a such a simple trick and once you hear about it like it makes it sound so obvious but to arrive at that point it took i mean it took me two months of work i mean i i went i went through 148 different iterations of pie crust (laughs) before i actually arrived at that final how many bottles of vodka (laughs) (laughs) yeah a few a few more than i should have yeah um, a few in the pie and a few for yourself right right (laughs) um i mean it it is uh, fascinating that you you take these things for granted and then you see how complex uh, simplicity is mm -hmm. um were there any other examples like mashed potatoes or something that you spent months upon um let's see then i mean yeah, I mean mashed potatoes. Um, I, I actually des- just did a, a couple recipes for uh, for seriousheats.com, yeah. um, which you can find. I, they went up last week, so if you if you go to Serious Heats and search for mashed potatoes, you'll find them. But uh, I'm doing a whole bunch of Thanksgiving recipes right now. But um, yeah, mashed potatoes. I mean, there's there's so much science behind behind um, a, you know a simple potato. Um, you know, from from the, the the ratio of of starch to pectin, from the ratio of starch to sugar in there, and and you know all these things can sort of affect the way it can affect the final outcome of your potatoes. So, you know, uh, something as simple as cutting a, cutting a potato into, into quarter inch cubes instead of boiling them whole, um, will give you a completely different end result. Um, just because when you cut it smaller, more starch gets washed out. So your potatoes become a little bit less gluey. Um, see, I mean, one, one example, I mean, I guess the other recipe that took me a really, really long time to do was, um, was perfecting French fries. Um, yeah. and, um, you know, and I'm, I'm talking about the sort of, sort of mcdonald's style fries you know thin golden brown you know sort of the the ideal mcdonald's fry thin golden brown super crispy on the outside nice and fluffy in the middle um and french fries just seem like such a simple thing but you know they're they're really really difficult to get right double brine and double fry yeah well the yeah they i mean the result i ended up getting was um if you if you 
boil the potatoes first in uh, in in water. Um, so if if you boil potatoes in water, they they soften. Um, the the in, insides get a little fluffy. Eventually, they they break into pieces. Um, and the idea is that you want to boil them in water first, just to get the that center nice and fluffy, um, and to also wash away some of the excess sugars and starches, so that when you fry it, um, it doesn't brown too fast. It turns nice and crisp instead of instead of getting dark brown. Um, but if you boil the potatoes in plain water, um, they get really soft and they break apart. So um, what I discovered was that if you add a little bit of vinegar to the water, um, what vinegar does is it, it lowers the pH of the water. And um, in lower pH is uh, pectin, which is the um, the sort of cellular glue that holds you know that, that holds plants together. Um, pectin doesn't break down as readily in uh, in low pH environments. So if you add a little bit of acid to your water when you're boiling your potatoes. They don't. You can boil them until they're tender, but they don't break apart into pieces. Um, you know, so so that that was basically how I solved that problem. So yeah. you boil the potatoes in water, and then and then you boil with potatoes in water with vinegar, um, let them cool, and then you fry them, and they, and they they come out. Cool. Can, really and great. can you use a whole bunch of acetic acids like lemon juice and, and any acid? Yeah. Work. Yeah. I mean, I use just plain distilled vinegar just because it has a neutral flavor and it doesn't come out. Um, you know, le- lemon juice would work, and any. Yeah. yeah, any kind of. Acid so, is that a similar fashion to why people poach eggs with a little bit of vinegar in the water? Um, it's well, that's a little bit different. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the putting vinegar in in water, vinegar reacts with proteins in a different way than it reacts with pectin. Um, pectin's a carbohydrate; um, it's a type of sugar. But um, uh, vinegar will cause proteins to to denature. So, um, basically, you know, a, a protein, if you imagine it, is like a pipe cleaner, um, a, a wire that's all jumbled up. Um, into a specific shape. Um, when you heat things, um, or when you put proteins in vinegar, it causes those pipe cleaners to kind of straighten out, uh, untangle themselves, and that and that's exactly that's basically what's going on when you cook something. It's all all those proteins are straightening out and sticking to each other, and that's why meat becomes you know more opaque and and tougher when you cook it. Um, and and that's exactly what happens. You know, an egg on the molecular level is not that different than a steak. You know, it's, yeah. it's basically protein and water. Um, and so when you put an egg in, in slightly acidic water, um, that, that acid will help the protein set a little bit faster. So people, people put vinegar in water when they're poaching eggs because they want that, um, the exterior proteins on the egg to set a little faster so that the shape, the shape, uh, is nice. Yeah. Um, although if you're careful, you don't really need the, you don't, you don't necessarily need that vinegar in there. You know, some, some people actually find that it turns the eggs a little tough and gives it a bad flavor. Yeah. uh, So, I mean. Of these little techniques that you've learned, what do you apply, even though, uh, or, or what are ones that you hmm. don't apply, even though you know they work better? Um. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, cooking is always, it's always a balance between what you're willing to put into it and what you want your end result to be, you know. Um, and so, even though I know that, say, if I'm, if I'm cooking a steak, for example, I have a, I have a nice, like, one and a half inch thick ribeye steak. If I want, I know that, I know that the, the absolute best way to cook it is to slow cook it first, either either you know sous vide in a water bath or in a really low temperature oven. Slow cook it, to get you know, give it about two hours to come up to a perfectly even 125, 130 degrees medium rare in there, and then take it out and sear it at the very end. You know, but sometimes I don't want to wait two and a half hours to eat a steak. And sometimes you don't have a hold of mat ready. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Sometimes you're you're restricted by your tools, and you're also restricted by your the amount of effort you want you're willing to put in. So, you know that that's why most people, even even at restaurants, you know, most restaurants still cook their steaks on over really high heat, even though it's not the optimal way to cook a steak. It gives you results that are really good in yeah. a very short amount of time. They're maybe not the best results, but for a lot of people, the time savings is yeah. worth it. And for me, most of the time, honestly, most of the time, the time savings are worth it. So, I mean, these variables aren't huge uh, from how you do it one way to the next. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it it depends on on what you're cooking. Sometimes sometimes the variables can be huge, but uh, but yeah, it's. I mean, in the end, it's all just a matter of you know, it's just a matter of knowing what you want your end results to be and how much time you're willing to willing yeah. to put into it. So so your book, um, you know, sometimes I'll even use canned chicken stock as opposed to making my own tisk. <laughs> when when the freezer runs out of space, I right. do the same thing. Like you know, upcoming holiday season. Uh-huh. Um, but you, your book, the kind of subtitle uh, tentatively at the moment <laughs> is Better Home Cooking Through Science. That's right. Yeah. And you worked at, you know, these lauded restaurants in Boston. How is cooking in a restaurant different than cooking at home with these new applied methods? Well, for one thing, I mean, cooking at home is is way more relaxed. Um, it's way more relaxed. It, it gives you more time to explore, more to, you know, you, you get, well, first of all, you get to do your own thing, whereas at, at restaurants, um, basically, you, you do what the chef tells you, and that's it, um, you know. And, and restaurants, you know, they're all about, um, they're all about efficiency, high output, um, you know, getting everything done as fast as possible, and you don't really have time to try cooking this fish 25 different ways yeah right you don't you have neither the time nor the nor the money to do that um and you know frankly most people don't have the time or money to do it at home which is why you should buy my book because <laughs> i spend the money to do it so you don't have to you have but, to recoup some of those losses yeah <laughs> exactly um but yeah i mean you know re- restaurant cooking is is very very different from home cooking restaurant cooking is all it's all about following orders working well in a team um being able to execute the exact same thing over and over and over again you know if if you know if if somebody orders the halibut on tuesday you know tuesday in february they want to be able to come back on on a saturday in in may and get the and order the halibut again and have it be exactly the same as they remember it so working in a restaurant is 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 a lot about yeah efficiency and and following procedures um whereas cooking at home um you, you get to do you get to do what you want you know if i'm cooking at home i don't, I don't want to eat the same thing more than once a year you know i, I I'm, I'm happy with turkey on thanksgiving i, w- I want to do something different every single day i want to i want to be constantly exploring new um you know new tastes new cooking t- cooking techniques but i mean the ideas are still about consistency and efficiency of technique and methodology um yeah i guess i guess in in the end the way you know the way my book will be applied for a, a normal person yeah it would be to be able to get consistently better results yeah. out of your cooking so um, um could we maybe talk about a little preview of your book because we, we had <laughs> priorly been uh, chatting about mm-hmm. uh, the idea of energy and transference of energy uh-huh. um but we're actually going to take a quick break and let you ponder that all right um <laughs> we're gonna take a quick break be back with kenji lopez i'll talk about the transfer energy and not to forget his love of pizza yes uh, <laughs> you're listening to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.com we'll be right back
Welcome back to the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Kenji Lopez Alt, um, upcoming cookbook author, amongst other things, uh, the Food Lab series for SeriousEats.com. Soon to be a book by W.W. Norton in 2012. We had just left, uh, I had kind of been asking about the idea of maybe some previews, maybe some mm-hmm. juicy little tidbits from this book. And Kenji was actually talking about the transference of energy and mm-hmm. how important it is and how often overlooked it is mm-hmm. in cooking. Uh, could you give us a couple examples? Yeah, well, you know, with cook- with cooking, um, um, I, th- I think there's a sort of misconception that... Um, temperature is everything um and you know and when it when it comes to say um measuring the temperature of a piece of meat you know then then temperature matters you want you know you want your chicken to be at 150 degrees uh, with the government says 165 i prefer at 150 you know you want a medium rare steak to be at 130 degrees (laughs) (laughs) but um when you're actually talking about the process of cooking you know getting something hot getting something from cold to hot which is basically what cooking is um the what much more important than the temperature you're cooking at is actually how much energy you're transferring to a piece of, transferring to a piece of food. Um, and so, by way of example, I mean, um, you know, for example, you can have a a 212 degrees pot of boiling water, um, and that's that's 212 degrees. You throw a piece of food in it, in there, it cooks pretty fast. You can also have a 212 degree oven, you know, and that's the exact same temperature, but it cooks much much slower. So, you know, you you can easily stick your hand into a 212 degree oven, but if you stick your hand into boiling water, you're going to burn yourself, um, you know. And so that's a pretty clear example that temperature when you when you're yeah. talking about how fast things cook and how and and the pr- actual process of cooking temperature is not the overriding factor yeah. and, and i'd that, say people can try that example at home but i wouldn't advise <laughs> it and another reason to buy kenji's book is maybe he's done that for us just to make sure right that, right, right. <laughs> that's true <laughs> you know you, you can have, you know another good example at home is if you is if you have a um say a stone or a marble countertop and then you have a cutting board and they're both sitting there at room temperature touch the touch the wooden cutting board and it feels sort of warm but touch the marble countertop and it feels cold um and that's because you know again it all it all what it has to do with is is a thing called thermal mass um you know uh, specific heat capacity and basically what that means is that some certain materials um for the for a given temperature they're at that they're at they have the ability to contain more energy than other materials um so that that's why um if we go back to talking about pizza a little bit i don't um, mind that at all <laughs> <laughs> that's why if you have um let's you know if you go to a, if you go to one of the real neapolitan places with wood burning ovens you know the the air in the oven gets up to a thousand degrees the floor the stone floor of the oven gets up to 700 800 degrees um but stone is not that great um a conductor of heat um whereas metal is so so what you can do is at home, if you heat up a pan, a metal pan to 500 degrees, you can actually cook the bottom of a pizza crust just as fast or even faster than the 700 degree stone oven of a, of a real Neapolitan pizza oven can cook it. And that's because, you know, again, temperature is not the only thing that determines how fast things cook. It, it has to do more with how fast energy is transferred from one place to another. And metal is just much better at transferring yeah. energy than stone is. And most recently on Serious Seats, you did a couple posts of both Neapolitan and New York sliced pies and mm-hmm. had yep. been telling me uh, uh, the cast iron method. Right. Well, yeah, the, 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 this is a method that um, that you use to get sort of Neapolitan-style pies at home. Um, and the way you do it is you make a basic Neapolitan dough, um, which is a lean dough. It's just flour, water, salt, uh, yeast. Um, you, you, you let it sit, ferment overnight or for a couple nights, preferably, then you stretch it out. And basically what you do is you, you heat up a skillet. It can be steel. It can be cast iron. Um, you heat up a skillet to about 500 degrees. So that's, that's maximum heat on your, on your stovetop for maybe five minutes or so. Um, and then you can, you place the dough directly in there 
top it with your sauce, um, and then slide it underneath a preheated broiler. Um, and so what you're doing is you're getting it with the residual heat from the pan underneath, and then the uh, you know both the infrared and the convection heat from the from the broiler element above. Um, and so you end up cooking the pizza in about two minutes, which is uh, which is exactly what you want with a Neapolitan pizza because these these you know thousand degree Neapolitan pizza ovens they cook a minute they cook pizzas in about yeah. ninety seconds to two minutes yeah. or so. Um, and so you get um, when you when you cook them that fast, what happens is the uh, the air inside expands really rapidly, so you get a really dramatic rise in the in the in the cornicione the the crust the outer crust of the uh, the pizza. In the what? Cornicione. How do you spell that? C O R N I C C I O N. This isn't a spelling test, so. but I yeah. think it's a great piece of knowledge for future uh, food crosswords. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think that's it. It's yeah. the, uh, it's the uh, Italian word for the you know the pizza bones, the the the, the rid, the la- you know the last outer one inch of yeah. the crust or so. Um, but you know you get that nice rise, and you get the you get the leopard spotting that you that you're looking for in a Neapolitan pizza. Um, but if, if we're talking about New York style pizza, um, those actually cook at a much lower temperature. Um, they, they cook in, in regular, you know, they, they cook well in either coal or gas ovens. These days it's mostly gas ovens. Um, yeah. But th- I mean, th- but that's like regulatory in New York because right. you can't have coal outside of right. John's. Unless you're grandf- grandfathered in. Yeah. I think, yeah. yeah. But, um, th- those ones cook at a lower temperature than a Neapolitan oven. Um, and so, so the pies don't, the pies actually take, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes or so. Um, and so those you can actually even just do in a regular home oven with a, with a pizza stone built in it. You want, again, you want to put that pizza stone in there because it absorbs energy and holds onto it until you put, put the pizza crust down in it when, and then it transfers it to the bottom of the crust and gives it that nice crackery browning. Um, and the, and the, trick to, the trick to New York pizza is that the dough, the dough is a little different. The dough has a bit of, um, of oil in it, um, olive oil, uh, which what that does is it sort of coats some of the flour granules so that um they don't form as tight a gluten matrix so the dough is a little bit less chewy and it's a little bit it's a little more tender than a uh, than a neapolitan dough is um and then there, it also has a little bit of sugar in it um just to help with the help with the browning um and then um finally the one the one trick that i found um really helps make with making uh, actually any kind of dough is to is to make it actually in the food processor instead of instead of with the stove with the dough hook um, yeah. the stand mixer um because what that does is it well it goes really fast, obviously. So it um, it, it breaks up the flour into very, it breaks up the gluten into very small pieces that can then recombine into long strands. So you you get a dough that um, can retain more air and it can inflate better, so that you you get end up getting a much lighter a lighter dough with a with a bigger hole structure. Um, and doing it fast in the food processor, it also prevents um, oxidation. So the the more flour comes in in contact with oxygen, um, the oxygen can actually change its flavor profile um huh. and and so so doughs that get needed for a really long time um actually have less flavor than doughs that are needed yeah uh with you know with with a lot of force very quickly um, yeah so so food food processors actually um you know if you're as long as you're working in small batches you know it's not practical for a place like roberta's yeah, yeah. To, to need all their <laughs> dough in food processor but for a home cook it's it's really the ideal way to knead any kind of bread dough. Well, this is all the more reason to check out this book because <laughs> you think pizza is simple until you hear about this. But at the same time, it is, it is simple. It is simple. This yeah. actually uh, simplifies the best pizza you can make. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the I, the idea is that um, you know, for for a lot of people, you know, from for me for a really long time, you know, pizza was this magic thing, right? Like. I don't know. I don't know how yeast works. I don't know how doughs work. I don't know what's going on there that makes this pizza taste so good. Um, and and the idea here is to sort of dispel that dispel that magic. You yeah. Know, that, you know. There. Yeah. Sure. There. There is some some sort of magic in food, but there's no magic in the process by which food gets cooked. Um, and you know, knowing the science behind that process really, you know, f- 
freeze you in the kitchen. It, it, it makes you into a better cook. Yeah, the magic is once you can produce the food that you want to eat. Right, yeah. The magic is between the people eating it and the, and, yeah. and the food. I just wanted to note one more thing that uh, Kenji was actually named... 40 big thinkers under 40 by food and wine recently right uh <laughs> congratulations on that thank you also thank you. uh brendan and chris of roberta's were amongst that list mm-hmm. so it's just nice to have this community burgeoning with ideas and <laughs> you know different tastes uh, and where do you see the new york or brooklyn food community going <laughs> um you know well i i'm i'm you know i'm, I'm impressed by the number of um that, well, the number of young people getting into getting into cooking and 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 wanting to and and sort of the um, wanting to do everything themselves and uh, you know and and that's that's had, had that's had both good and bad results yeah. you know um, you know but but I think it's I think it's fantastic that people really want to get to the the roots of their food and you know and are are not content with the with the products they're given and people want to really you know they're not happy just to put soppressata on their pizza they want to they want to know how the soppressata is made yeah. they, they're not even happy with that they want to know how the pig that goes into the soppressata is raised you know and i th- i think you know the more the more background knowledge you have about your food um you know the, the the more control you have over it and the better you can make it in the end and and the better we can make the whole food system so that's a very exciting thing for me and very exciting to have you on discuss all this build a better pizza the food lab coming out <laughs> in 2012 always on seriouseats.com Kenji Alt Lopez. Kenji Lopez Alt. One one other quick question. Mm-hmm. Background on your name. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> it's quite mudded. Yes, I'm. Well, I'm. My full name is James Kenji Lopez Alt. Um, my mother's Japanese. My father's American. So that's the James and the Kenji. I've always gone by my Japanese name. Um, I got married a year ago. Took my wife's last name. So my Alt became Lopez Alt. Yeah, <laughs> excellent. So Kenji's just bringing America together. Right. That's all we got to <laughs> say about. That. Um. Thank you again for being on yeah, thank the you for food scene. Um, Tuesdays, 3 p.m., listen in, heritageradionetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, and build a better pizza. Check out the Food Lab. Thanks. Thanks.